Chapter Seventeen of *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Seventeen. Back at Tripataly. Annie's lips moved as Dick announced that they had crossed the Mysore boundary, but. No sound came from them. He saw her eyes close, and she reeled in the saddle. "'Hold her, Surajah!' Dick exclaimed, "'or she will fall!' Leaning over, Surajah caught her by the shoulder, and Dick, leaping to the ground, stopped her horse, and, lifting her from the saddle, seated her upon a bank and supported her. "'Some water, Surajah!' he exclaimed. Surajah poured a little water from the skin into the hollow of Dick's hand, and the latter sprinkled the girl's face with it. "'I have not fainted,' she murmured, opening her eyes. "'But I, I turned giddy. I shall be better directly.' "'Drink a little wine,' Dick said. Surajah poured some into a cup, but with an effort she sat up and pushed it from her. "'There is there is nothing the matter,' she said, only—' only, And she burst suddenly into a passion of sobbing. The spirit that she had shown so long as there was danger had deserted her, now that the peril had passed, and she was safe.' Dick looked at her helplessly. A girl in tears was a creature wholly beyond his experience, and he had no idea what he ought to do in such an emergency. He therefore adopted what was doubtless the best course, had he but known it, of letting her alone. After a time the violence of her crying abated, and only short sobs broke from her, as she sat with her face hidden in her hands. "'That's right, Annie,' he said, putting his hand on her shoulder. "'It's quite natural for you to cry after the excitement and fatigue you've gone through.' You have been very, very brave, and have not said a word of complaint today about your fatigue, although you must be desperately tired. Now, try and pull yourself together. It's getting dark already, and we ought to be moving on to Rayakata, which cannot be much more than a mile away. You shall ride in front of me when we get there. I would rather not, she said, getting up with a painful effort. I am awfully foolish, and I am so sorry that I broke down, but I felt so delighted that I could not help it. You said we could camp safely? when we once got across the frontier? Would would you mind doing so, for I don't think I can go much further. Certainly we can camp, Dick said cheerfully, but we must get a little farther from that post we passed. If they were to see a fire here, they would be sure to suspect something. I see a clump of trees a quarter of a mile on. We can make our camp there, and I would rather do that myself than go on to Ryakata, where our appearance in the Mysore uniform would excite a stir and we should have no end of questions to answer. But I am sure that you are not fit to walk even that distance. Now, I will lift you on my saddle, and you can sit sideways. There, I will walk by your side, and you can put your hand to my shoulder to steady yourself. Surajah can lead your horse and his own, and Ibrahim can take mine. In this way they performed the journey to the trees, and then halted. Annie was lifted down and laid on a rug. Dick insisted on her drinking some wine, and then, Covering her with another rug, they left her and lighted a fire fifty yards away. "'Look here, Ibrahim. Put that whole chicken into the pan, cover it with water, and let it stew. Don't let it boil fast, but just simmer until it falls all to pieces. Then I will wake her, if she has gone to sleep, and make her drink the broth. It will do her ever so much more good than wine, and she'll be all right in the morning, though no doubt she will be desperately stiff again. Still, it has not been a longer ride than she had yesterday.' I expect it's the excitement more than the fatigue that has upset her. Tomorrow she must ride in front of me again. An hour and a half later, 
Dick went across with the cup full of strong broth. "'Are you asleep, Annie?' he said, when he reached her side. "'No, I am not asleep. There is so much to think of, and it's such happiness to know that I am free, that I feel quite wide awake. Besides, you know, I have been asleep for hours today, and I slept all night as I was riding before you.' "'Then sit up and drink this hot broth. It will do you good. And after that, I hope you will go off. You won't be fit for anything tomorrow if you don't have a good night. You'll have plenty of time to think as we ride along.' The girl did as she was told. "'It is very nice,' she said, as she handed the cup back to him. "'Oh, Dick, I do hope that we shall find my father and mother. I don't want to for some things, but I do for others, and most of all that they may thank you for all your goodness to me, which I shall never be able to do myself.' "'Nonsense, child,' he said cheerfully. "'I've done what everyone would do, if they found a little countrywoman in distress. I should have gone away from Seringapatam anyway, if I had not met you and getting you down is a good excuse for me to go back and spend a fortnight with my mother. Now get off to sleep as quickly as you can. We'll see what we can do to make things comfortable for your ride tomorrow. It was late when Annie woke. The sun was some distance above the horizon, and she saw her companions occupied with the horses. In a few minutes she joined them. I am ashamed of sleeping so long, she said. We were glad to find that you did, Dick replied. If you went to sleep soon after I brought you the broth, you have had ten hours of it, and ought to feel all the better. I do, she said. I am very stiff, but not so stiff as I was yesterday morning. How you are both altered! Yes, it would never have done to have gone on in our gay dresses and Tippoo's badges. These are the clothes we came up in, and we shall attract no attention whatever. You won't have to ride far to-day. It will be as well for you to keep to your own horse until we have passed through Ryakata, which is not much more than half a mile away. After that you must sit on this pad I have fastened behind my saddle. You can sit sideways, you know, and put your arm around me, just as ladies used to ride in England a couple of hundred years ago." As soon as they had eaten something they started, and rode at a good pace to the little town. People looked at them somewhat curiously as they passed through the street, wondering that they should have come from Mysore, but as they did not halt no one asked any questions. The population were at present a good deal divided. The great majority by no means regretted their change of masters. Some of the Mohammedans had left when the place was taken over by the English, and had crossed into Mysore. Others had remained, and hoped that ere long Tippoo would drive back the British, and regain his former dominions. Before mounting, the rich housings and the silverwork on the bridles had been removed, and hidden among the rugs, and there was nothing beyond the excellence of two of the horses, and the direction from which they came, to attract attention. When well beyond the town they halted. The saddlebags were all packed upon Annie's horse. Dick lifted the girl onto the pad behind his saddle and then mounted. "'Now hold tight by me,' he said, "'and mind, whenever you are tired we will halt for an hour's rest. We'll not go more than twenty miles to-day, and then it will only be as much more down to Tripotli to-morrow. We'll walk for a bit until you get quite accustomed to your seat.' After a while the horses broke into a gentle canter. For a time Annie felt very doubtful as to whether she could retain her seat, and so held tight with one arm to Dick, while with the other hand she kept a firm hold of the crupper. Presently, however, she was able to release her hold of the latter, and it was not long before she was able honestly to assure Dick that she felt quite comfortable, and had no fear of falling off. In two hours they passed near the hill on which stood the fortress of Krishnagari, which had successfully resisted the attack of the English, but above which now flew the British flag. Skirting round the foot, they came in the course of an hour and a half's ride, 
on to the direct road which they had left at Anakul, in order to avoid passing through the town of Usur. Here they came upon a large village, and Dick found no difficulty in hiring a light native cart to take Annie, who was, as he felt by the relaxation of her hold, unable to proceed further on horseback, to continue straight through to Tripatli. A thick layer of straw was placed at the bottom of the cart, a couple of rugs spread over it, and on this Annie was enabled to lie down at her ease. The horses were fed and watered, had an hour's rest, and then they started for the last twenty miles of their journey. Annie had, while the horses were resting, a chat with a native woman, and had gone into her house with her. When they were ready for the start, she returned, dressed in the costume she had worn in the palace. It had originally been intended to get rid of the clothes after starting, but Annie had asked for them to be taken on. "'I can change again before I get to Tripatli, she said. "'I should not like to appear before your mother for the first time dressed as a boy.' And Dick had at once fallen in with her wishes. The turban was gone, and her head was covered in the fashion of native women, with a long cotton cloth of a deep red color. Where the road was good, the cart proceeded at a fair pace, but in the pass down the ghats they could go only at a walk, and the sun had set before they reached Tripatli. Dick, seeing that Annie was growing very nervous, as they neared their destination, had ridden all the way by the side of the cart, chatting cheerfully with her. "'Why, Annie,' he said, "'you look as solemn as if you were just going into slavery instead of having escaped from it.' "'It's not that I feel solemn, Dick. It's that everything is so new and strange. Of course, after your saving my life, I have never felt that you were a stranger. And as long as there were only you and Suraj, I did not mind. And I have felt quite at home with you. But now that I am going to a new place where I don't know anyone, I can't help feeling desolate.' "'You'll feel quite as much at home with them in twenty-four hours as you have done with me, Annie.' You are tired now, and quite worn out with your journey, and so you take a gloomy view of things. I will guarantee that before I go away again you will be good friends with everyone, and will wonder how you could have thought it to be anything dreadful to come among them." When they got within a mile of Tripatli, Dick said, "'Now I will ride on ahead, Annie, and prepare my mother for your coming. It will be pleasant to have no questions or explanations when you arrive and I am sure she will carry you straight off to bed and keep you there until you have quite got over the effects of your journey. He did not wait to hear Annie's faint protest against his leaving her, but telling Surajah to take his place beside the cart, and to keep talking to the girl, he galloped on ahead. He sprang from his horse in the courtyard, threw the reins to a servant, and ran in. The party had just sat down to their evening meal, and as he entered he was greeted by exclamations of astonishment and welcome. His mother had received two letters sent through Pertaub by traders going down from Seringapatam. In these he had told her first of his arrival, and of the adventure with the tiger, and of his obtaining the post in the palace, and in the second of the non-success that had attended his visits to the hill-forts. He had told her that he should probably leave Seringapatam shortly and continue the search, but that she must not anticipate any result for a long time. "'Well, mother,' he said, after the first embrace and greetings were over, "'I have left Tipu's service, you see, and am no longer a colonel or an officer of the palace. I have come down to spend a fortnight with you before I set out again on my travels.' "'Has Surajah come back with you, Dick?' the Rajah asked. "'Yes, he'll be here in a few minutes with a cart. That's one of the reasons why I came down here. I found among the slaves of the harem a white girl about fourteen years old. She's the daughter of a British officer named Mansfield, and was carried away from her parents eight years ago. She was the only white captive left in the palace. 
There have been other girls in a similar position, but they have all, at about fourteen or fifteen, been given by Tippoo to his officers, as would have been her fate before long. So I determined to carry her off with me and bring her to you until we could find her parents. She's a very plucky girl, and although she had never been on a horse before, rode all the way down until we got this side of Kishnagari. But as you may imagine, the poor little thing is completely knocked up as we brought her down from there in a cart. It is something, mother, to have saved one captive from Tippoo's grasp, even though it's not the dear one that I was looking for, and I promised that you would be a mother to her until we could restore her to her friends. Oh, certainly I will, Dick, Mrs. Holland said warmly. Will you tell the girls, Gola, she said to her sister-in-law, to have a bed made up for her in my room? I will do so at once, the Rani said. Poor little thing, she must have had a journey indeed. She'll be here directly, mother, Dick said, as his aunt gave the necessary directions for the bed to be prepared, and a dish of rice and strong gravy. She's very nervous, and I'm sure it will be best if you will meet her when she arrives, and take her straight to her room. That is what I was going to do, Dick, his mother said with a smile. Well, I will go down with you at once. Two or three minutes later the cart entered the courtyard. Mrs. Holland was on the steps. Dick ran down and helped Annie from the cart. The girl was trembling violently. Don't be afraid, Annie, Dick whispered as he lifted her down. Here is my mother waiting to receive you. This is the young lady, he went on cheerfully as he turned to his mother. I promised her a warm welcome in your name. Mrs. Holland had already come down the steps, and as the girl turned to her, she took her in her arms and kissed her in a motherly fashion. "'Welcome, indeed,' she said. "'I will be a mother to you, poor child, till I can hand you over to your own. I thank God for sending you to me. It will be a comfort to me to know that, even if my son should never bring my husband back to me, he has at least succeeded in rescuing one victim from Tippoo, and in making one family happy.' The girl clung to her, crying softly. "'Oh, how good you all are!' she sobbed. "'It seemed too much happiness to be true.' "'It is quite true, dear. Come with me. We'll go up the private stairs, and I will put you straight to bed in my room, and no one else shall see you or question you until you are quite recovered from your fatigue.' "'I am afraid,' Annie began faintly. She did not need to say more. Mrs. Holland interrupted her. "'Dick, you must lift her up and carry her into my room. Poor child, she's utterly exhausted, and no wonder.' A couple of minutes later Dick returned to the dining-room. He had run down first to tell Surajah to come up with him, but found that he had already gone to his father's apartments. "'Well, Dick,' the Rajah said as he entered, "'I was prepared, after hearing of that tiger adventure, of you and Surajah being colonels in Tippoo's household, for almost anything. But I certainly never dreamt of your returning here with an English girl.' "'I suppose not, Uncle. Such a thing certainly never entered into my calculations.' I did not even know there was a white girl in the palace, until one day she stopped me as I was passing along the corridor near the harem, to thank me for saving her life, for it was this girl that the tiger had struck down, and was standing upon when I fired at him. Of course she had no idea that I was English, we only said a few words then, for if I had been seen talking to a slave girl belonging to the harem, I might have got into a scrape. However, I saw her afterwards, and she told me about herself and how she was afraid that she would be given away to one of Tippoo's officers. Of course, I could not leave her to such a fate as that. There was really no difficulty in getting her away. She was dressed as a boy, and only had to ride with our servant after us. We had arranged so that our absence would not be noticed until we had been away for at least twenty-four hours, and, of course, as officers of the palace, no one questioned us on the journey, so that it is a very simple affair altogether. 
and the only difficulty there was rose from her being completely tired out and exhausted by the journey, as she was utterly unaccustomed to travelling. I had to carry her one night in front of me on my saddle, for she was scarce able to stand. I am not surprised at that. A journey of a hundred and fifty miles to anyone who has never been on horseback would be a terrible trial, especially to a young girl. I really wonder that she did not break down altogether. Why, you can remember how stiff you were yourself the first day or two you were here, and that after riding only an hour or two. I know, uncle, and I should not have been at the least surprised if she had collapsed. I talked it over with Surajah, and we agreed that if she could not go on, we must hire a vehicle of some sort and let her travel every day in front of us with Ibrahim, and that if it delayed us too much that there was any possibility of our being overtaken, we would have put on our peasants' dresses, got rid of our horses, and have gone forward on foot. However, she kept up wonderfully well, and always made the best of things. We won't ask you to tell us anything more, Dick, till your mother joins us, or you will have to go over the story twice. No, uncle, and I can assure you I don't want to tell the story until I have had my supper, for our meals have not been very comfortable on the road, and I have not eaten anything since early this morning. What is Tipu doing, Dick? Well, as far as I can see, uncle, he's preparing for war again. He's strengthening all his forts, building fresh defenses to Serengapatam, and drilling numbers of fresh troops. The English general made a great mistake in not finishing with him when he was there. We ought to have taken the city, sent Tipu down a prisoner to Madras, and there tried him for the murder of scores of Englishmen, and hung him over the ramparts. We shall have all our work to do over again in another four or five years. However, it will not be such a difficult business as it was last time, now that we have the passes in our hands. There is no doubt, uncle, that a considerable part of the population will be heartily glad when Tipu's power is at an end. You see, he and Hyder were both usurpers and had no more right to the throne than you had. Quite so, Dick, and that makes our letting him off, when we could have taken the capital easily, all the more foolish. If he had been the lawful ruler of Mysore, it might not have been good policy to push him too hard, for he would have had the sympathy from all the native princes of India. But as being only the son of an adventurer, who had deposed and ill-treated the lawful ruler of Mysore, it would seem to them but a mere act of justice if the English had dethroned him and punished him provided, of course, they put a native prince on the throne, and did not annex all his dominions. It has all got to come some day. I can see that in time the English will be the rulers of all India, but at present they are not strong enough to face a general coalition of the native states against them, and any very high-handed action in Mysore might well alarm the native princes throughout India into laying aside their quarrels with each other and combining in an attempt to drive the English out. Just as they had finished their meal, Mrs. Holland entered. "'The poor child is asleep,' she said. "'She wanted to talk at first and to tell me how grateful she was to you, Dick. "'But, of course, I insisted on her being quiet, "'and said that she should tell me all about it in the morning. "'She ate a few mouthfuls of the rice, "'and not long after she lay down, she fell asleep. "'I have left Sundra sitting there in case she should wake again, "'but I don't think it's likely that she will do so. "'Now, Dick, you must tell us all about it.' Dick was not a great hand at writing letters, so he had not entered with any fullness into the details of what he was doing, the principal point being to let his mother know that he was alive and well. Before he begins, the Rajah said, I will send to Rajbulab and Surajah. Master Dick is rather fond of cutting his story short, and we must have Surajah here to fill up details. Surajah and his father soon appeared. The former was warmly greeted by the Rajah, 
and when they had seated themselves on a divan, Dick proceeded to tell the story. He was not interrupted until he came to the incident of the killing of the tiger, and here Surajah was called upon to supplement the story, which he did, doing full credit to the quickness with which Dick had, without a moment's loss of time, cut the netting and ascended to the window. When Dick came to the incident of the ladies of the harem presenting them in Tippoo's presence with the two caskets, Mrs. Holland broke in, "'You did not say anything about that in your letter, Dick. Let me see your casket. Where is it?' "'Oh, it's in one of the saddle-bags,' Dick said. "'They are in my room,' Rajbulub corrected. "'Surajah brought them up at once.' "'Then he had better get them,' the Rajah said. "'What do they contain, Dick?' he asked, as Surajah left the room. "'All sorts of things, necklaces and rings. Some of them are stones, as if they had been taken out of their settings. Pertob said they had done this because they thought, perhaps, that Tippoo might not allow the jewels they had worn to be sold or worn by anyone else.' "'Then I should think that they must be valuable,' the Rani said. Pertob said they were worth a good deal, but I don't know whether he really knew about the cost of precious stones. Some of the things were of small value, being, I suppose, the trinkets of the slave girls. All gave something. And there's a little cross there that belonged to Annie. It has her initials on it, and she had it on her neck when she was captured. It was the thing she valued most, and therefore she gave it. I don't suppose she had anything else except the usual trinkets she would wear when she went out on special occasions with the ladies of the harem. I thought it would be useful to us to prove who she was. Surajah now returned with the casket. "'You'd better look at Surajah's first, Dick said. I don't know anything about it, but it looks as if mine were the more valuable. I wanted Surajah to put them all together and divide fairly, but he would not.' "'My son was perfectly right,' Rajbulub said. "'If it had not been for the young lord, the deed would never have been done at all.' Surajah aided in killing the tiger, but that was nothing more than he has done on the hills here. It is to you the merit is entirely due. The purse that Sultan gave my son was in itself an ample reward for the share he took in it. Now, Surajah, open your casket. The ladies are waiting to see the contents. The whole of the little packets, some fifty in number, were opened and examined, many of them eliciting exclamations of admiration from the Rani and Mrs. Holland. "'There is no doubt that many of them are worth a good deal of money,' the Rajah said. "'It is certain that Tippoo's treasuries are full of the spoils he has carried off, from the states he has overrun, and the ladies of the harem, no doubt, possess a store of the jewels, and could afford to be liberal to those whom they considered had saved their lives. "'These seven, which you put together as the best, must alone be worth a large sum. I should think that the total value of the whole cannot be less than forty or fifty thousand rupees.' so that if those in your casket are handsomer than these, Dick, they must be valuable indeed. Dick's casket was next examined. Some of these stones are magnificent, Dick. These three great diamonds could only be valued by a jeweller accustomed to such things, for their value depends upon their being of good luster and free from all flaws. But according to my judgment, I should say that at the very least they must be worth ten thousand rupees each. That pearl necklace is worth at least as much, those rubies are superb. I should say, lad, that the value of the whole cannot be less than fifteen thousand pounds. The harem must be rich in jewels, indeed, to be able to make such gifts. Not that I am surprised at that. Tippoo had all the jewels belonging to the lawful rulers of Mysore. He has captured all of those of Coorg, Travancore, and the other states of the Malabar coast. He and his father have looted all the Karnatak from Cape Cameron to the north of Madras. He has captured many of the Nizam cities and several Maratha provinces. 
In fact, he has accumulated at Seringapatam the spoils of the whole of southern India, and those of the Hindu portion of his own people. The value of the jewels alone must be millions of pounds, and as he himself, as they say, dresses simply, and only wears one or two gems of immense value, he may well have bestowed large quantities upon his harem, especially as these would be in fact only loans, as at the death of their wearers they would revert to him, or indeed could be reclaimed at any moment in a freak of bad temper. I have no doubt they had to ask his permission to give you the presents, and as you at the moment were in high favour with him, I dare say he suffered them to give what they chose, without inquiring at all into their value. The gold he gave you was simply to procure your outfits, and he left it to the harem to reward you as they chose for the service you had rendered. Well, Dick, I congratulate you heartily. It places your future beyond doubt, and leaves you free to choose any mode of life that you may prefer. I congratulate you, too, Margaret, on the lad's good fortune, which he has well deserved by his conduct. See this, my sons. Here you have proof of the advantages of the training your cousin has had. The quickness and coolness he has acquired by it enabled him to make his way down through the fort at the top of the pass, and to defend the ruined hut against the fifty enemies. Now it has enabled him to seize the opportunity, opened by the attack of the tiger on Tippoo's harem, thereby gaining the Sultan's favour, his appointment to the rank of colonel in the Mysore army, a post in his palace, and this magnificent collection of gems. Without that quickness and decision, his courage alone would have done little for him. We in India have courage, but it is because our princes and nobles are brought up in indolence and luxury that the English, though but a handful in point of numbers, have become masters of such wide territories. Surajah is as brave as Dick, but he would be the first to tell you that it is to Dick he owes it that, on their first excursion together, he escaped with his life, and that in this last adventure he attained rank and position, and has returned with these valuable gifts. It is indeed, my lord, Surajah said. The young lord has been my leader, and I have tried to carry out his orders. Alone I could never have got through the gate in the fort, and should no more have thought of going into the assistance of the ladies of the Sultan's harem than did any other of the thousands of men who were there looking on. So you see, boys, the Rajah went on, that though when he came out here your cousin was able neither to shoot nor to ride, and can neither shoot nor ride as well now as can tens of thousands of natives. He has acquired, from his training in rough exercises, qualities of infinitely greater value than these accomplishments, and I do hope that his example will stir you up to take much greater interest than, in spite of my advice, you have hitherto done in active sports and exercises. Your grandmother was an Englishwoman, and I want to see that, with the white blood in your veins, you have some of the vigour and energy of Englishmen. It was some days before Annie Mansfield left her room. For the first two she had been completely prostrated. After that she rapidly gained strength, but Mrs. Holland thought it best to insist upon her remaining perfectly quiet until she had quite recovered. Either she or the Rani were constantly with her, so that, when at the end of a week she made her first appearance at the breakfast-table, she was already at home with three of the party. Before long her shyness completely wore off, and she seemed to have become really a member of the family. Mrs. Holland had altered two of her dresses to fit her, but she preferred for a time to dress in Indian costume, to which she was accustomed, and which was, indeed, much better suited to the climate than the more closely fitting European dress. Mrs. Holland, however, bargained that she should, of an evening, wear the frocks that she had made for her. "'You must get accustomed to them, my dear, so that when you find your own people you will not be stiff and awkward, as you certainly will be, 
when you dress in English fashion for the first time. The day after his arrival Dick had written to the military secretary of the governor of Madras, with whom he was well acquainted, to tell him that, having gone up in disguise to Seringapatam to endeavour to ascertain the fate of his father, he had discovered a young English girl detained as a slave in Tippoo's harem, and that he had enabled her to effect her escape, and had placed her in the charge of his mother. He then repeated the account Annie had given of her capture, and asked if the circumstances could be identified, and if the officer, of the name of Mansfield, concerned in it, was still alive, and if so, was he still in India? Annie was secretly dreading the arrival of the answer. After her life as a slave, her present existence seemed to her so perfectly happy that she shrank from the idea of any fresh change. She had no memory whatever of her parents, and had already a very strong affection for Mrs. Holland. She liked the Rani very much also, and the absence of all state and ceremony in the household of the Rajah was to her delightful. She was already on good terms with the boys, and as to Dick, she was always ready to go with him, if he would take her to run messages for him, or to do anything in her power, and indeed watched him anxiously, as if she would discover and forestall his slightest wish. One would think, Annie, he said one day, that you were still a slave and that I was your master. I don't want you to wait on me, child, as you waited on the ladies of the harem. However, as I shall be going away in a few days now, it doesn't matter. But I should grow as lazy as a young rajah if this were to go on long. What shall I do when you go away, Dick? Well, I hope that you will set to work hard to learn to read and write, and other things my mother will teach you. You would not like when you find your own people to be regarded by girls of your own age as an ignorant little savage. And I want you to set to and make up for lost time, so that if you are still here when I come back, I shall find you have made wonderful progress. Oh, I do hope I shan't be gone before that, Dick. I'm afraid you must make up your mind to it, Annie, for there is no saying how long I may be away next time. You see, there's not much chance of my lighting upon another white slave-girl, and having to bring her down here, and I shall go in for a long, steady search for my father. I don't want you to find another slave-girl, Dick, she said earnestly. Not even if it brought you down here again, I should not like that at all. Why not, Annie? Oh, you might like her ever so much better than me. I should like you to do all sorts of brave things, Dick, and to save people as you have saved me, but I would rather there was not another girl. Dick laughed. Well, I don't suppose that there's much chance of that. Besides, I can't turn my uncle's palace into a home for lost girls. Two days before Dick and Surajah started again, the reply from the military secretary arrived. It stated that the time and circumstances pointed out that the place besieged and forced to surrender, eight years before, was Corsopan, and this was indeed rendered a certainty by the fact that the officer in command was Captain Mansfield. He had with him a half-company of Europeans and three companies of sepoys. On looking through the official papers at the time, he had found Captain Mansfield's report, in which he stated that on the night after leaving the fort, the troops, which had been reduced to half their original strength, had been attacked by a party either of dacoits or irregular troops. Fearing that some such act of treachery might be attempted, he had told his men to conceal a few cartridges under their clothes when they marched out with empty cartridge pouches. They had, on arriving at their halting-place, loaded, and when the dacoits fell upon them, had opened fire. The robbers doubtless expected to find them defenseless, and, speeding into the confusion, some of them had penetrated far into the camp, and had carried off the captain's daughter a child of six years old. When peace was signed with Tippoo three weeks afterwards, the commissioners were ordered to make special inquiries as to this child, 
and to demand her restoration. They reported that Tippoo denied all knowledge of the affair, and neither she nor any of the other girls there were ever given up. The letter went on. There can be no doubt that the young lady you rescued is the child who was carried off, and the initials you speak of on the cross may certainly be taken as proof of her identity. Her father retired from the service last year with the rank of colonel. I am, of course, ignorant of his address. As you say that Mrs. Holland will gladly continue in charge of her, I would suggest that you should write a letter to Colonel Mansfield, stating the circumstances of the case, and saying that, as soon as you are informed of his address, the young lady will be sent to England. I will enclose the letter in one to the Board of Directors, briefly stating the circumstances, and requesting them to forward the enclosure to Colonel Mansfield. To Annie the letter came as a relief. It would be nearly a year before a letter could be received from her father. Until then she would be able to remain in her new home. End of chapter 17 Back at Tripotli Recording by Mike Harris